Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Grant. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. And, you know, I thought we had ruined Christmas twice before, but there is always more to ruin. In fact, it's part of the magic of the season. Yes, we are going to ruin Christmas again. And this is a ruining that comes from our listeners. Yes, this was a suggested topic, was it not? Yes, on the Discord, because our listeners were talking about Hallmark movies and like, we know you've ruined Christmas, we know you've ruined Christmas music, but could you ruin just the very notion of the season? And we're like, yeah, uh, oh yes. Yes, fuck we yeah. Can. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. We would love to. So Maya, before we get into it, how are you doing this week of Christmas coming up and uh, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a hot toddy that is very much like like a hot old-fashioned. Uh-huh. There's orange in it. There's honey in it. It's muddled. There's bourbon. Uh, it's really working for me. I'm okay. We were at a soccer tournament all weekend, which is like, just kill me fucking now. Mm. Um, and then my daughter, it's just a, a part of these times with the Omicron explosion that my daughter gets... A little sick. It's the kind of little sick that in the before times, I would have sent her to school without any inkling of guilt in my heart. I would have been mm-hmm. like, uh, runny nose, give her some Tylenol, send her to school. But then you just freak the fuck out. We like stopped at a CVS in middle of nowhere and bought a bunch of home kits and like, it's yeah. just Did you do the nuts. home testing? We did. I swabbed her little nostrils. And of course, it wasn't COVID. Okay. You know? Well, like, and she's fine. She had like two nights later, she's fine. I mean. And it's just like. Here in New York, you can't get a home test. They are sold out at every drugstore. Yeah. There are lines yeah. down the block for places that do COVID testing. Right. And I mean, you can say like maybe you're overreacting and so forth. But I think at this point, we are all going to get it. (laughs) Yeah. I think when you look at the data on Omicron and how transmissible it is, and the R0 is like three or three and a half or something, I'm concerned about this. I have to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm concerned as well. Um, I recently, you know, got my numbers because I'm participating in this study. Mm -hmm. And so I got my numbers that tell me that like, A... I never had it, but B, I still have a lot of antibodies floating around from my Moderna. So like, it was cool to like, go, go Moderna. So it was cool to get my numbers. And I was like, "Ah, I can put off getting a booster. Oh, no, I can't. Mm -mm, mm -mm. You got to get that booster. You just put that shit in my body. Um, So yeah, it's very sad and just depressing and and the news is depressing so right now frankly i'm ignoring it i feel like we are way behind on kind of like a current events episode and i feel like it's because i emotionally can't handle it i mean we just did a current events episode last week yeah sort of <laughs> it was it was speed yeah, game speed game eh, it, and it wasn't, also we didn't, we didn't, we didn't get go really deep into, into the, it yeah no the really no. disturbing stuff no 
Although I do want to add, in terms of recent news, that right after we recorded, Chris Noth, who plays Mr. Big on Sex and the City, was outed as, like, a sexual abuser, rapist, which, like, who's surprised? I'm not surprised. I can't imagine anyone is surprised. I read about it because, again, with the fucking Peloton, the reason I knew that spoiler for the new Sex in the City show, Mr. Big dies in the first episode, is Peloton was freaking out about it because he dies from riding a Peloton. Uh, and so Peloton apparently released an, an ad, like an online thing. The ad featured Chris Noth. And then yeah. like the next day they had to pull it because he got accused of sexual yeah. misconduct. Oh, of rape. I mean, let's, yeah, let's I just get... found out that what it actually was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a lot. So sorry we missed that. Sorry we talked about Sex in the City. It just, and you know, didn't know, it's really hard to keep up with all of the rapists who make culture. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, I mean, I'm we so could sorry. have a whole show that's just that. Just rapists, rapists. So speaking of rapists, I'm sorry. No, not speaking of rapists. <laughs> how are how are you doing? What are you drinking? Wow. <laughs> Do you want to try that again? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, once you get to rapists, there's no good transition out of that. So just to get away from the rapists, that's how better. are you doing? What are you drinking? I am doing fine. I wanted to share with you that I got a Christmas card from the White House. Actually, from Joe and Jill. Okay. Isn't that nice? No, it actually was addressed to a former resident of this apartment. (laughs) But that person hasn't lived here for like four years. Usually I just recycle his mail because if they don't have a forwarding address, he doesn't want to be reached by them. But I saw it was the White House and I was like, hmm. So I opened it up and it doesn't have any specific name on the card. So I assume the White House, they just send Christmas cards to like a random selection of Americans. Uh, Probably random selection of Americans who've donated money. Maybe. That's quite possible. But if that person donated money, it wasn't when they were living at this address, not to Joe and Jill anyway. But Uh it's a lovely card with a nice original watercolor of the White House with the wreath on the front. And my favorite thing is that it has a quotation from Helen Keller. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or touched. They must be felt with the heart. Okay, it's kind of a trite quote, but it's totally a coded message because as we all know, Helen Keller was a socialist. Yes. So yes, I yes. feel like um, Joe and Jill are winking at me there. They're letting me know they get it. They they, they are fellow travelers. <laughs> what are you drinking? What are you shaking up right now? Is that nog? Are you nogging it up? I am not nogging it up. I am experimenting. I'm trying to invent some holiday cocktails. I was Googling for holiday-themed cocktails, Christmas-themed cocktails, And I wasn't really satisfied with what I was finding. So I decided that I wanted to try to invent something. I'm trying to make a candy cane martini. Oh. This one is just vodka, peppermint schnapps, a little bit of sambuca, and a little bit of white creme de cocoa. You know, sambuca is very licorice. I didn't want it to taste licorice, but I wanted to have that little bit of candy taste. So I actually like it a lot. The color is completely white. I put 
half and half in it because I don't have heavy cream. Don't worry. It's fat-free half and half. No, I'm just thinking of like <laughs> what red thing can just cause a swirl. I'm thinking maybe grenadine. Yeah. We also a little enhance the candy flavor, but I'll have to go get that. All right, listeners, if you are patrons, you will get this recipe, this holiday recipe on our Discord channel, on the Sauce Speakeasy, uh, where we've been talking about cocktails throughout the holiday season. But we will uh, put Rebecca's new, very sexy candy cane recipe there. So you have to be members. You have to be members of the Discord channel to get this recipe, as Rebecca now tries to dribble a little bit of grenadine. And let's see how it goes. I'm afraid the grenadine's all going to sink to the bottom. But we'll see. Yeah, but if you can, maybe if you swirl it circularly. I mean, that's what I'm going to try to do. I am currently trying to swirl grenade. I just sunk to the bottom. But it creates a nice ombre effect. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it It does. uh, Kind of bloody. I don't know. Mm. It looks a lot like the late term abortion cocktail that I invented. (laughs) I was about to say, looks a little bit tampon y, a little tampon y. I don't know about that. Anyway, listeners. You will get our recipes, and maybe you'll have other ideas of how to make it. We've also been having amazing conversations about politics and the Build Back Better bill, and which is being stopped by Joe Manchin, which we'll get to in a second. And we've also uh, been talking about just like how to deal with family in this Omicron time. Um, and we just would love even more of our listeners to join us. If you join at the $2 level, you can join us on the Sauce Speakeasy. And if you join at the $5 level and above, you get bonus material. So we would love to see you there. Maya, I really liked what we did last time. Okay. When we did speed round of the news and we timed ourselves. Yes. I want to try that this time. Instead of a five-minute timer, though, Mm -hmm. because that's a little bit too quick for uh, what we're trying to do, let's do a 10-minute timer. Okay. And when the timer goes, that'll be it. It will be, we have to stop talking and end that segment. Great. And that is that. Yeah. All right. So I'm putting 10 minutes on the clock. Okay. Are you ready to start talking ready. and ruining the Christmas holiday season? Oh, bitch, I was born ready. All right, the timer is starting. Okay, I want to start with the history of Christmas celebrations to create some context here. Okay, because what we're trying to ruin, let's just be very clear, is this notion of the season that yes. underpins a lot of like Christmas narrative. Like there's this magical time of the year that is this time, that is the Christmas time. And uh, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and in order to get to that, I think Rebecca wanted to go all the way back, all the way back. I mean, all the way. All the way. I just, I started reading a little bit about the history of Christmas celebrations and I found out some really interesting things that I hadn't known because I thought I sort of had the gist of it. But there were some things I wanted to share. So what gist did you think you had? The gist I thought I had was there were all these pagan celebrations like Saturnalia and Yule and the Christian church sort of co-opted them and said, oh, we'll make that Christ's birthday. You guys are celebrating Christ now. Isn't that what it was? Not necessarily, but um, we can start there. Okay. So today I learned the first recorded Christmas celebration was in Rome 
on December 25th, A.D. 336, 336 A.D. Whoa. Yeah. I did not realize that in the early centuries A.D., like the very start of the spread of Christianity in Rome, and even before that, they were already talking about December 25th as potentially being Christ's birthday. Now, the logic of this was that through their very precise calculations based on careful study of scripture, they determined that March 25th was the day of Christ's death, the date of Christ's death. And in ancient times, it was commonly believed that great men could not live for any fraction of a year. (laughs) If a person was a great man, he would live only for entire years. His birth date and his death date would have to be the same. But for Christ, because of his sacredness and holiness, his conception date was considered to be March 25th. So God impregnated Mary on March 25th. Nine months later would be December 25th. So that was the logic behind thinking that that was the birth date of Christ. Oh my God. That's that's what's running underneath all of this conception, like that life starts at conception. That's like that's like some abortion shit. I okay. Mean, that's part of it. Also, yes, it was a winter solstice, but it wasn't just that there were pagan celebrations on the winter solstice. It's also that in the early centuries AD, early Christians associated Christ with the sun for various reasons we do not need to get into. So it kind of made sense for it to be on the solstice. Now, there's different theories about this. There is a theory that the early Christian leaders determined that date because that was the date that they thought it was. And there's also the sort of hypothesis that it was more of a hijacking of paganism. From what I could see, most of the hijacking of paganism ideas came out of the 18th century, the 1700s. So most of the theories that Christianity hijacked paganism came out in in the rise of the Enlightenment, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, the Enlightenment and also Protestantism. Got it. So you have some Protestant thinkers like Paul Ernst Jablonski, who argued that Christmas was placed on December 25th to correspond with the Natalis Solis Invicti, the holiday celebrating the birth of the sun. And that was why it was like all pagan and we shouldn't celebrate it. Uh, But then like uh, Denise Diderot, Mm -hmm. if I'm saying the first name correctly, I don't know, that you may know of who would be an Enlightenment skeptic, mm-hmm. uh, said something like, oh, it just made sense symbolically to take Christ's birthday and put it where there was already a pagan festival. But, however, comma, one might point out that Emperor Aurelian, the one who in 274 instituted the holiday of Dies Natalis Soli Invicti, possibly did so as an attempt to give pagan significance to a date that was already important in Christian Rome. Some are arguing that. So it's not entirely clear that it was a pagan hijacking or that it wasn't. I think maybe a little bit of both. It's also, this is really interesting to me. Apparently there's no historical reference to Yule before 500 AD. Yeah. Oh, shit. I mean, there's no doubt that Viking peoples or peoples of that region were celebrating some winter festivals. Right. But, But the word Yule, the concept of it, didn't appear until centuries after Christmas was being celebrated on December 25th. So it's more of a coming together of traditions, I think, 
than just the church hijacking someone's traditions, just like taking it and repurposing it. Well, because there was always, there is this fact that it is this time of the year that is kind of weird and uncanny and transitional and the longest nights of the year. Like this is, that is part of what this moment is about. It's about like cozying up and saying, hey, we're not dead. We have enough food to get us through. Like, you know. Exactly. That is what this is. Brings us very well to the Middle Ages. Not to completely skip like the Dark Ages and everything that happened between Rome and medieval period, because uh, apparently Christmas was pretty prominent throughout the Dark Ages. But it really took off in the Middle Ages. And part of that was uh, the Little Ice Age. Like, there were unusually cold temperatures in Europe mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. parts of the Middle Ages. And so a wintertime festival where everyone could get cozy and party and also people of means would give to people of lesser means. This, was, this became a big element of Christmas in the medieval period. And that makes sense given that the peasants probably could not survive the very cold winters without some help during this period. And you needed the peasants to survive because who else was going to like plow your fucking fields once the like I mean, snow melted? Exactly. So the idea of charity and gift giving was incorporated in the 9th, 10th, 11th century through uh, through the Tudor period. Um, the idea of the 12 days of Christmas started to be celebrated then. And it was actually like a two-week-long celebration. Well, because again, what, what the fuck else are you going to do at this part of the year? Exactly. You're not plowing. You're mm-hmm. not like tending fields. You're not like, harvesting. You're, you're not, not doing, doing any, of, any that. of that shit. Exactly. So there was feasting and drinking and singing. The concept of caroling came to be, though it may have been a more lewd activity than we now associate with that word. There was gambling and general merriment. Some of it uh, quite dirty <laughs> is the implication that Which all my sources. I want to. I want to add. So there's this. Uh, I'm sure I've brought it up before. There's this booklet from from the 14th century France called the Distaff Gospels, where mm-hmm. what women would do at this time of the year is they would all every night go to a different woman's home and and weave thread because that's what you could do all night. So they would pick a home. And every night, and it was these long nights, and it was a way of everybody in town getting together, doing this task that was going to help them from the year. And every night, one woman would sort of host and give her sort of woman's wisdom as the boys and girls who were maturing and stuck in houses at night were flirting with each other or whatever. And like, yeah, that's absolutely, and it's dirty, it's body, absolutely. We're stuck here. Let's tell jokes. Let's talk about sex. Like, come on. Yeah, but I think it was a little rowdier mm. than than that. It was drunkenness, promiscuity, gambling. The the bigger point here is that it was a public festival. Mm. It it was very much a community public festival where a very important element of it was gift giving from like landlords to tenants or you know, uh the the landed aristocracy to the peasantry. And um, it just grew and grew until by the 1600s, 
It was characterized, Christmas celebrations, I mean to say, were characterized by lavish dinners, elaborate masks and pageants. That's a direct quote from Wikipedia, but I liked that description. And I just want to read a quick quote from this article that I just read today in the Herald Scotland. Uh Writer Neil McKay interviewed professor of religious and cultural education, Bob Davis of Glasgow University. He writes, the idea of charitable giving in the 12 Davis days of Christmas not only, quote, reinforce social bonds, he's quoting the professor there, uh-huh. between the rich and poor, but also became an excuse for partying. Okay. But it's the reinforced social bonds between rich and poor that I think is key. Okay, we're, that's what we're flagging right now. That is what we are flagging because things changed in the... Oh. It's okay. We can stop because we're ready to move on to the next segment anyway. Okay. So what we're flagging is reinforced social bonds between the rich and poor. That's what we're flagging. Yes. Okay, I'm going to start the timer again. I am going to continue a little bit with the history, but it's going to lead into our main topic of this segment, which is really... Christmas in the 19th century, and very specifically Dickens and the Christmas Carol. And with that, it seems that we have to start with Protestants. Mm, Indeed. So (laughs) when we left off in the last segment, we were talking about this uh, lavish, elaborate public festival community event that was happening. After the Protestant Reformation, things changed. In fact, uh, Professor Bob Davis of Glasgow University says that the Protestant Reformation was the biggest threat to Christmas there's ever been. Oh, yeah. oh, because because Protestants don't want to do that big, sexy, rowdy, dirty, no, party, pagan, feely, dancey, yes. singing they kind really of stuff. thought it was very pagan. In fact, like in Britain, they banned... It, they banned expressions of papistry at Christmas time. Yeah, only briefly. They brought it back in like the 1660s. Um, And of course, like in Boston, in the Boston colony, Christmas celebrations were uh, illegal because they were Puritans. Um, Yeah, the Puritan sort of sects, the more Puritanistic sets of sects of Protestantism were very much against it. And generally speaking, I think a lot of Protestants felt like it wasn't biblically justified. It wasn't scripturally justified. In the cases where it wasn't totally prohibited or banned, it was often sort of reworked. One prominent example being that the idea of the baby Jesus giving gifts came to be. And basically the idea of Santa Claus came to be. Martin Luther apparently was one of the big forces in saying that the gifts at Christmas are given by St. Nicholas. This worked well because St. Nicholas's feast day was December 6th, so it was in the zone. So Lutherans could sort of take these Christmas traditions, but give them a religiously justified tie-in, Okay. I guess. Okay. So, so we have this shift away from any of these papist slash read pagan rituals, mm-hmm. a reworking of it, but also when we come back to reinforcing the social bonds between rich and poor, Protestantism also brings with it at the same time, or sort of parallel to it, we have industrialization. Yes. 
you could say that right at the time of the Protestant Reformation is sort of a proto-industrial period. And then that really starts to take off. And what do we see in the shift, that economic shift? We see enormous social shifts, right? Uh, I want to go back to quoting this Professor Davis because he puts it really well. He talks about the, quote, disengagement of elites and nobility retreating, quote, into their big country houses. So you're you're losing the relationship between peasant plowing the field and nobility who owns the field as fraught as that relationship may be. You're losing the relationship completely and getting workers who are working in factories and industry who have no relationship whatsoever with the owners of um, the means of production, if you will. And because you have this separation of the public sphere and the private sphere starting to happen, where people's work and home are no longer the same thing, those two forces lead to Christmas becoming more centered on the home and family. So where it was this public celebration, now it's more of this private thing that you do at home with your family. And um, this is also corresponding with the advent of class conflict the okay. idea of there class was not a class, class conflict was happening mm-mm, mm-mm. not in the sense we think of it today okay wildly disagree but i am but there is a different quality that it that that's a whole conversation for another okay. time but i feel like there is a different quality that it does take when you have class put into sort of the the production of capital and industrialization yes. So class does become this very, like, it it is becoming a a bit of a different animal, although I will argue there was class conflict the whole time. Okay. But there's a different cast to it. uh, Yeah, I'm talking about a certain kind of class conflict that I think of um, in the industrial era. So what's really interesting is that during the 19th century, you see this huge revival of Christmas traditions, of medieval Christmas traditions, or what were perceived to be medieval Christmas traditions. And um, part of that was this class conflict and people very deliberately longing to go back to a different way of being and a different way of relating amongst the classes. People wanting to revive ideas of charitable giving and the wealthy having a responsibility to the poor. And paternalism. And well, of course, it's paternalistic, of course. And, yeah. and also there was just sort of a general fascination with medievalism, especially in Britain in the 19th century. So here's where you have like the rediscovery of the Christmas tree. And all of the these ideas about longing for this medieval idea of a Christmas with community coming together and the paternalistic wealthy helping the poor was synthesized and packaged in a beautiful digestible nugget by Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol, which is one of the most popular narratives of all time. Yes. I mean, it was a huge hit. He was hard up for money at the time because Martin Chuzzlewit hadn't done so well. (laughs) And um, the legend is like he was walking the streets of London trying to think of something. And I don't know, he wrote this in like three weeks and it sold out immediately and just has been in constant print ever since and 
blah, blah, blah. It's, I don't know how many film and television adaptations oh there have God. been. Every sitcom in the history of whatever has done their own episode version of it. There's Absolutely. like a ballet and an opera, a million adaptations. People love this story. And it really, in many ways, embodies the Christmas narrative. What is Christmas? What is the season? What is the spirit of Christmas? Well, and that's the thing that's, that is so interesting about it is that this holiday spirit that comes once a year and this moment where all of a sudden work stops because it has to stop mm-hmm. forces him to see and to give this one oh, yeah. time. This one time. This one time. Well, Dickens was very socially conscious. And he wrote this as a work of social commentary. Um, He was all about helping the poor. His own family, you know, he had experience with uh, going to debtor's prison. He had to drop out of school as a boy and work in a factory. So he was very aware of these issues and was very much trying to share a message about charity and helping the poor through a Christmas tale. Now, the morality of the story is in many ways very dated. Like, okay, this is from Michael Callahan in Town and Country, wrote an article that I recently read about Christmas Carol. And he says, um, Dickens was determined to cast a light on the virtues of the forgotten poor, who in his view exemplified the best in us. So right there is a kind of a weird 19th century idea that somehow the poor are virtuous. Just because they're poor, they exemplify the best in us. I don't know. But that's like Tiny Tim, right? Tiny Tim is just all goodness and just the embodiment of all that is good because he's sick and feeble and (laughs) poor, I guess. Well, because money is corrupting. And I feel like it's, Mm. it's interesting because... Money is corrupting. He's this corrupt character. And in the story, it's like he's corrupt because he's sad and bad things happen to him. So he became selfish. Like America fucking- Did they even say that bad things happened to him? Well, isn't it about like someone loved him or he loved somebody and then he didn't like- No. Oh, you don't even remember Christmas Carol. I don't. Our the past. Went, What's the past? We're going to keep going. Just quickly, quickly. He's he's at Fezziwig's ball. Yeah. And there's the girl he loves. Yeah. But then later, she doesn't like that he's so devoted to his work and all he cares about is money. And he lets right. her go rather right. than reassess his priorities. So okay. he doesn't, anything he loses is because he chose. He right. thought money making was too important. What I want to get to, even though we're out of time, I'm going to give us like two more minutes. What interests me is how popular A Christmas Carol is in America. My God. And how much that version of Christmas and the Christmas spirit and the Christmas season and what it means resonates with Americans and why that is. I think it's also very interesting that Christmas was not declared a federal holiday in the United States until 1870. My God. Which makes sense given the Protestant Puritan history of the United States. And I think also there was an element of, well, that's an English thing. Right. We're not that. 
But then in the 19th century, you have this book coming out and you also have Washington Irving writing Christmas stories. And suddenly there's this interest and public um, embracing of these traditions and it becomes a federal holiday. Now, what is it about A Christmas Carol that resonates so much with Americans? I feel like a big piece of it is that fundamentally it's a story about salvation in a very born again kind of way. Right. It doesn't matter what you've done or how bad you've been. Ultimately, this story is about how you can be redeemed. Right. You You can see the area of your ways and you can turn it around. It's never too late. That's, I mean, that's Catholic for sure. But I think it's also very Protestant Going back to what you just said about how it's one, one day of the year. Right. It's this idea that, yes, you've been a horrible person, but y- if you do that one thing, you can well, correct it all if you just, like, express your fealty to which the right Which I have to say is thing. the opposite of, like, the one of the things that I've come to really appreciate about the Day of Atonement, about Yom Kippur, and I'm saying this as somebody who's raised as such an atheist, mm-hmm. is that the whole thing about Yom Kippur is that you get together as a community and you don't just atone for your sins. Mm-hmm. You're atoning for the community's sins and you list every bad thing that happens as if you did it. Yes. I murdered. I uh-huh. embezzled. I yep, stole yep, bread. Yep. I ignored the poor and the least within this. Like, I did all of that. We all are sitting here saying we as a community are taking responsibility for these things. That is not what this is. (laughs) This is about this one guy getting the Christmas spirit. Yes, very much so. In a way, it is like the foundational Christmas narrative because it's about him as an individual getting the Christmas spirit. And um, it's interesting to me that in the book, and in every adaptation pretty much, there is an acknowledgement of institutional responses to poverty. When Scrooge is talking about the poor says, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And then later the ghost of Christmas present throws that back in his face to shame him. So the book is very much acknowledging there are prisons and workhouses. There is an institutional response. But Scrooge's salvation and redemption are not in addressing the failures of the institutions to respond to poverty. His redemption is in his own personal growth and transformation. Yes. And his individual generosity. Yes. So there's there's no need to see any collective solution. And there's no... Uh, uh, like institutional causes noted either. It's not about looking at the causes of poverty. It's just about the wealthy's moral responsibility to be generous and help the poor in that very Middle Ages paternalistic way. It doesn't even talk about his responsibilities to yeah, to the community. It's like very individual. He's got to help the Cratchits <laughs> specifically. Yes. There is yes. like a responsibility to his employee, yes. which is something. That is something. But the idea that a business owner just should be like this because it is good business, because it's the correct way to be in a political sense, in a social obligation sense, it's really more about the moral obligation. So... and. Also, 
Scrooge is a Jew. No. Didn't we talk about this before? Okay, Surely so, in one of our previous episodes. So, so Scrooge is a Jew and he gets the spe- he gets saved. He gets, he gets saved. saved by Christmas. Okay, so I feel like this is what we are establishing as what's underneath all of the spirit in this country. Okay, I started the timer again. We're going to do so it this time. I need to tell a story. I need to start. Okay. Like, I need to start just, this. Like, can yeah. I set? I just want to set up that in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas today and how all these things we've talked about sort of play into what we now consider to be the narrative of Christmas. Yes. And the spirit of the season. So I live in this neighborhood in Los Angeles called Hancock Park, which is a was a very it was one of the first kind of fancy neighborhoods. And then everybody built Beverly Hills and, you know, mm-hmm. fucking went west and went to Bel Air. And it kind of fell into the cracks. Uh, but people have bought the houses, the big fancy houses, and have renovated them, and they're very pretty. And there's this one house that's a few blocks from me. I'm kind of on the transitional zone <laughs> between Koreatown and like Hancock fucking Park. So two blocks one way, it's K-Town. Two blocks the other way, it's like fucking mansions. So there's this mansion that I've always called the Philadelphia Story Mansion. You just look at it and you just expect Kathleen, Catherine Hepburn to just walk out being fabulous. And this woman, uh, Kat Von D, the tattoo artist slash makeup baron slash reality TV star, a few years ago, she bought it. And she painted the whole thing. She bought the Philadelphia Story Story Mansion. Mansion, wow. And she renovated it. And she is this character because her whole thing is like, I don't want to pay my employee taxes. God, California makes me pay so many taxes. And she like, she's like bought a house in Indiana. And she's like, I'd rather live in Indiana. I mean, we'll keep our house in LA. We're not going to like sell it. You know, we're going to keep our Philadelphia Story Mansion. We're going to keep paying the property taxes. Right. But what we're really going to say is that the property taxes are bullshit and like recall nuisance. And like, like, don't wear masks. All this right wing, oh, wow. like capitalist, you know, like nonsense. But for Christmas, she decorates that house. It's fucking hilarious. It's like going to a public park. There are giant toy statues. She wraps all and every day when I go there, they've added more lights. Like they they mm-hmm. add, like the trees are now like all the way up. Like I will post pictures on our Patreon of how Please. fucking insane it is. And there's music just pumping out onto the street. It must drive the other rich people fucking crazy. But people like stop there and play and it's nuts. I have never seen a mansion be so nuts. There is a light everywhere there can be a light. She is exactly America and Christmas. Because all she does with her public platform is complain about how she works so hard and California makes me pay all of these fucking taxes. And I'm going to move to Indiana, but not really. I'm going to keep this giant mansion in Hancock Park. But then for Christmas, she is all about the season and the Christmas spirit. And she does it with spectacle, with ridiculous spectacle. There's a lot to unpack in that share, I think. Yes. Some of it has to do with the right wing aspect that that 
she clearly has this positioning in the culture wars, if you will. Yes. And that's not in any contradiction to the Christmas decorations. No. Uh, that actually fits perfectly, right? Absolutely. they are super into Christmas in Absolutely. Those, uh, circles. The, and that's the thing about the season that mm-hmm. I find, like, when somebody's like, could you ruin the season? And and it was asked in the context of Hallmark movies. So mm-hmm. what are these Hallmark movies? And Netflix has taken over the Hallmark movie. Like, Netflix is putting out a bunch of, like, cheesy Vaseline on the lens Christmas romance movies. Like, yeah. original Netflix movies. Like, they're, like, single all the way. Yeah, and I'm people saying, love them. People fucking love them, right? So there's one called Single All the Way, which is, like... The That's gay a great version. Title. It's a great God. title, right? There's one which is like a castle at Christmas, which I had not heard about until today, which is like Brooke Shields and Carrie Elwes. And she's an author and she goes to Scotland and she decides she wants to build by this castle. And then there's a grumpy duke and then they fall in love. Like, whatever. People that sounds fucking... amazing. How? Okay. <laughs> so, so well, what I'm saying is all of those movies are about – there is this way that this time of year is a portal to another existence, even in California where it's warm. Like the days oh, are yeah. short, the nights are long, there's everybody sort of loses energy. Like it's a really weird alternative universe portal. There are all these beautiful decorations everywhere. It, there is something very magical about it. And it's like the saying like that this magical time allows things to happen, like generosity and goodwill and maybe love is possible in a way that it isn't when you're in the morass of the rest of your life. (laughs) And it's sort of like COVID. It's like, oh, wow, COVID made us see like jobs aren't real. The economy isn't real. It's all (laughs) fake. Maybe it could be something else. And that's what Christmas is, but like every year. And there's Christmas something is COVID Christmas that is comes co- every year. Christmas that's, is COVID right. that comes every year. We're going to put that quote on our website. But, the, but, then, but then that's the thing is that it's the season. It's the spirit. It's this one time of year where you can be generous and things can happen. Okay. So that – and that is what I feel like that's, you know – I want to connect that back to Dickens yes. and the ideas around Christmas – that were sort of generated there, although they have taken new shape. I mean, actually, I think we would be remiss not to talk about the extent to which Jews made Christmas. You know, like White Christmas. White Christmas. Irving <laughs> that, Berlin, baby. Yeah, we wrote all your goddamn songs. We did. So, so um, But then what did we do with those songs? We introduced the minor key to them yeah. so that it has that sort of melancholy element and that sort of melancholy beautiful. Come on. Well noted. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Yeah. Possibly my favorite Christmas song. I love that one. But connecting back to the the Dickens stuff and the sort of overarching, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And what is the narrative we've been telling ourselves for a couple hundred years now? Uh, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I think you said something like generosity allows magical things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Or does, or does the magic of Christmas allow, allow the generosity to happen? Because that is what happens in a Christmas carol. Yes. The magic of Christmas descends upon Scrooge and teaches him to be generous. Yes. So, I mean, it can be both. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but, but there's this relationship between generosity and magic. 
And there is this way in which these supposedly religious elements of Christmas, which you do not see at all in A Christmas Carol, by the way, <laughs> you see the religious aspects of Christmas almost never. <laughs> right. Except on in like in church or I guess high schools in certain places where they have a crash on the lawn, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> But but it is that thing where it's like we give, we're charitable, we care about the poor. Oh, this is the one time of year that we're gonna really care about people. And like I have to say I'm really glad we're talking about this on the day that it's revealed that Joe Manchin fucking scuttled the Build Back Better bill because right. he thinks that people are going to take that money and use it for uh, – poor people are going to take that child tax credit. They're going to use right. it to just do fucking drugs. It's like that's that's what we're talking about right now. This I is mean, the one day where we're going to give ourselves permission to be nice to poor people who don't have resources, and the rest of the year we're just going to treat them like shit for being poor. Like that, the magic of Christmas. So, Ooh, it's the magic of Christmas. So m magical and completely American about that contradiction. The people who are so gung-ho about the war on Christmas are also the ones who are fighting against any kind of legislation that would actually embody goodwill toward men, that would actually exercise the values that are supposedly the spirit of the season, the generosity, the paternalism. That's what's interesting about America. We take that paternalism, the 19th century paternalism, that is hearkening back to some 13th century paternalism and we turn it around into actually the wealthy don't have a responsibility to the poor like there's no community so like what dickens and his contemporaries were thinking about even if it doesn't come across in the book is this idea of a medieval public celebration a community celebration where the employers and employees got together. That's what he's yeah. depicting in that book, right? And again, what was a Saturnalia? There. What was yeah, Saturnalia? Sure. Saturnalia was was a pagan ritual in which the 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 rich and the poor, the the slaves and the masters trade roles for a day. Like how radical is that? That is very radical. Um I didn't know that about Saturnalia. Yeah. It 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 just gets to the crux of this like inherent contradiction that, that Christmas represents, especially today and especially in the United States. Um, I ha I'm going to go back to Professor Davis from Scotland because he said it really well in this interview. He said that Christmas is both an antidote to industrialization in that it gives ordinary people some joy in their mechanized lives, right? It's an escape. And it's a misdirection from industrialization and in that it takes objects of mass industrial production and wraps them up in colored paper. I think that's really well articulated. Christmas is the day when work stops. Yes. It's the it's one the of day, the only days in this country where work stops. Everything where all stops. Everything is closed. Except the Chinese restaurants, as we Jews well know. Yes. Everything comes to a halt and... In that sense, it is magical. You decorate your house. You may live in an unextraordinary home. You may live in a shabby home, but you're going to put up lights and an inflatable Santa on the lawn. And 
it's going to become a magical fairy wonderland. You don't have to be Kat Von D mm-hmm. and have the most elaborate thing, but somewhere in your town that exists and you could drive and go see it. And yes. everybody is uh, swept away from the humdrum of everyday life, from the from the worries and stresses of everyday life, putting aside the stress that the holiday causes so many people. Oh, but, God. But there is this um, pause to life, which is a relief to many people, working people especially. But of course, the contradiction is that at the same time, it's taking the products of that labor and turning that into the altar of worship for the holiday. Um, I I liked this quote from Professor Davis too. It's absurd to see, quote, a standoff between the magical Christmas and the material Christmas. It's a dramatic misunderstanding. What Christmas does is take the sacred and make it material. It sublimates the injustices of capitalism. Yeah, it's, it's beautifully said. It's like the thing I've been thinking all this time but couldn't quite put into words. Taking the sacred and making it material. But also sublimating the injustice of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't undo or undermine or challenge the injustice of capitalism. Exactly. It simply sublimates it. And what I find really interesting about Hallmark movies, about Christmas narratives, is this idea that all of a sudden love can happen, appreciation can happen, because we're above it. But then all of these movies are the most like... Nancy Meyers, perfect kitchens, of course, capitalist capitalist fantasies. I haven't watched any of them, but I already know that there's never like an economic issue in them. That they're never struggling, wondering where their next paycheck is going to come from. And the people who are struggling are not the focus of the Christmas Carol. It's the right. rich guy and his feelings. That are the focus of A Christmas Carol. Yes, it's the redemption of the wealthy person morally. Without Um, losing his money or his status as the paternalistic leader. He's morally redeemed, but he maintains his status. Of course. And also the, the idea of taking the sacred and making it material kind of goes in the other direction. It takes the material and makes it sacred in a way. And the the idea, like that Charlie Brown Christmas idea of oh, Christmas has become too consumerist. It, well, first of all, is absurd on its face because Christmas was never not that. Christmas was yes. never this other thing. It, it was some kind of raucous, rowdy, sexy celebration, right. <laughs> apparently. Uh, you know, it doesn't come from some tradition of like religiosity. But the idea that there's the true meaning of the season, right? Remember the real reason for the season versus uh, trees and Santa and gifts the tree and Santa and gifts, they are the sacred aspect of Christmas. They are taking the religious and spiritual and magical and giving them capitalist form. <laughs> they are things you can pay for, which is is really amazing to me. Just quickly going back to the war on Christmas idea, I just think it's really funny that the people who are vociferous about that they feel attacked by it. They want to keep the Christ in Christmas. Those folks are also the biggest backers of capitalism and the free market. And they don't seem to recognize 
basically what you're seeing is white identity politics coming into conflict with capitalism. It's not religion coming into conflict with capitalism because capitalism is the religion. Right. Right. It's their white identity politics and coming as, into conflict. And 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 it's not like multiculturalism is anti-capitalist and anti-Christmas. It makes me think a lot about the ways that queer culture, once gay marriage was legalized, marriage, like the marriage industry blew up. It isn't the end <laughs> right. of marriage. Are you fucking kidding me? Capitalist Capitalism and marriage went crazy like the, two the, two male incomes no kids like come, come on, on. <laughs> so so isn't it interesting that that multiculturalism has not killed christmas it's exploded it in all of these ways but we're seeing white it's actually christmas maybe that is the magic of christmas it brings white supremacy into conflict with capitalism and that is the true magic of christmas beautiful <laughs> We found it. We discovered the real meaning of Christmas. The we, real. We discovered the magic. The true magic. The true magic of Christmas. The true magic. Like we thought it was all a sham, but now we know. Actually, we actually, it's beautiful. I believe. I'm going to go back to Michael's and buy that pillow that says <laughs> "believe" on it. <laughs> Well, guys, I hope you guys have a merry, happy, jolly Yule solstice end of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. We love our listeners. You are our greatest gift. And we hope you will celebrate us by joining our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> wow, nicely done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very you much. Go to patreon.com slash sauce podcast to check out the different levels. And remember, all members get to join us on the sauce speakeasy where we can chat about the meaning, the real reason for the season. <laughs> The real reason for the elf on the shelf. Oh my God, the elf on the shelf. I think <laughs> we've we, talked we've about, talked we've about, talked about, about the elf but, on the shelf. Um, also, you can email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on the Twitter and Instagram and all the socials as at saucepodcast. If you want to write to me, uh, I'm at Maya Garantz. Anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz's. And I am at Gynostar on all the various platforms. We hope you guys are all getting your booster shots. Please get your boosters if you possibly can. And just staying safe. Yeah, please protect yourself and those around you as best you can. All right, guys, we will talk to you soon. Happy holidays and adios, amigos.